happens and the future is completely within our control. We're living through the single biggest culture shift of our time. This is the time for us to just really take charge. That's what revolutions do. They enable the impossible. You may not know Monica Rigotti's name right off the bat, but it's fair to say that her work has probably helped you get your job, reconnect with old friends, or lose those last five pounds in some way, shape, or form. Monica is a renowned data scientist. She was one of the first members of LinkedIn's data team, where she developed LinkedIn's job matching engine and doubled the effectiveness of the people you may know feature. After that, she built the data science and engineering team from the ground up at Jawbone, a health tracking wearable company. And today, she's an independent data science advisor, teaching other companies how to actually use the data they collect to make their products smarter. On today's episode, we're going to talk about the role of data scientists and how companies can hire and retain data teams that turn numbers into actions. I'm Megan Keeney Anderson, and this is The Growth Show. On Quora once, someone asked for the best advice on a career in data science, and you mm-hmm. advised something that you called the puppy dog test. Do you remember this? Oh, yes. <laughs> yes, definitely. So tell our listeners about the puppy dog test for career decisions, but also I'd love to hear how you've passed that puppy dog test at various stages in your own <laughs> career. I mean, you've worked for LinkedIn, you've worked for Jawbone, you're now independent. Tell me about your story as it relates to the puppy dog test. Sure. So I'll start with the puppy dog test. So many times data scientists are in this privileged position to have multiple offers, to have a lot of companies, they're in demand. So there's a lot of companies, there's a lot of offers, there's a lot of positions, a lot of possibilities. So it it all starts from admittedly very privileged position of having multiple offers and decisions to make around which offer you should take, right? Mm -hmm. And and my advice to people who are in that position is, hey, let's try to get some people together that you trust. Maybe actually get them in a room or you can actually do this over the phone and let's tell them about your choices and tell them about what the company does Mm -hmm. and what your role would be there, right? And when you tell them that, sure, you can you can see what their reaction is and what their advice is for you. But what should be you should be watching for is your own reaction. And how do you feel when you describe what the company does? And how do you feel when you describe what your role would be? Do you feel like a puppy? Is your tail is your tail wagging? Are you super, super, super excited about this? Because this is the time when you're going to be the most excited about this job, right? Yeah. Because you don't, you, you only know, all, you know, all the good parts and you're super excited and you don't know, you know, the day to day drudgery of a particular job. You're just super, super excited. And this is what you're going to have to say over and over again, especially if you're in a role when you're recruiting people and you are trying to inspire others to join you. Right. So that's the kind of contagious enthusiasm that people really, really want to join and that they really want to be part of. So then the question is, are you, are you feeling like a puppy? Do you feel like you are, you're so enthusiastic about this position? Are you passionate about it before you even start? So that's my puppy dog test. So here's what fascinates me about that, Monica. So I think when people think about data scientists, they think very rational 
you know, very practical. They're not thinking about someone who makes decisions based on how a particular opportunity makes them feel or the, the sort of emotional response. But, you know, at the risk of, of taking it too far, it feels to me like that puppy dog test is, you know, a way of factoring in your gut reaction, your emotion as, as a factor, as, a, as an indicator. Yeah, and and for those who tend to be uh, hyper-rational, the way I like to explain to them that same gut reaction is think of, of your gut as something that processes all these inputs that are either subconscious or conscious, and it's processing them and, and it's assigning a weight to them, and in that way it's behaving like a like a machine learning algorithm because it's it's taking in all these inputs that you maybe you you overlooked or maybe you didn't consciously take into account and it's telling you something about what that job would feel like day to day right so 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 that's something that that actually comes into play even if you are hyper rational about it and even if you are hyper rational about it you can think about hey i need to recruit people i'm a i'm a leader in this organization i need to recruit people or even if you're if you're joining as an individual contributor, you still need to inspire people. And if you're if you're close to the founder, you need to inspire investors and you need to inspire clients. And do you have that enthusiasm in you to be able to inspire others? And so that's where the puppy dog comes in. <laughs> I love that. I love your gut as a machine learning in its own right. That's very cool. Uh, all right. So tell me, what was it that your gut was telling you about LinkedIn and about Jawbone? Oh, my uh, gut was telling me to uh, to join, right? So especially when I first joined LinkedIn, I, I got this call. I was in my final stages of my PhD and I was using LinkedIn a lot and I was impressed with the product. It was super early on. Not a lot of people knew about LinkedIn. In fact, I remember just after after joining, I, I heard about LinkedIn on the radio and was super excited because... Mm-hmm. That's just something that didn't happen back then. This was uh, pretty early days. Just and, the fact that you were hearing and, about it on the radio. Exactly. It was just, it was small. It was to about 250 people. And it was, uh, let's see, about 17 million users uh, total. It was fairly small and not a lot of people had heard about it. Hearing about it on the radio was definitely not something that happened every day. But I was familiar with LinkedIn from my uh, grad school days. And uh, I was a... I was a fan. And so when I got that call, I was very excited about it and uh, definitely passed the puppy dog test. Good. Nice. And then what about Jawbone? Jawbone, I actually, that's when I actually thought of the puppy dog test because I got to do it in real time. I was at a cocktail party and I had already uh, narrowed down my choices to three. And that's exactly what I've done. I've talked to people and I was telling them, hey, I'm thinking about these companies and this is what the company does and this is what I would do. And that's when it just, I, I realized that it was just a very clear decision to, uh, to, to join a company that thinks about health and thinks about how to affect behavior and improve health. And that has really, really cool data. Yeah. And the place where I get to build a team from scratch and build the infrastructure from scratch and really take all those lessons that I've learned over, uh, over my career and build things in a way that I thought was uh, the most impactful. Yeah, you talk about in your writing about being fascinated by the data set itself, and, and that certainly seems true um, in your last couple of jobs. Awesome. So data science is something that so many people are still kind of in the dark about. 
Can you tell me very basically about what a data scientist does inside a company and why they're so important, especially today? Uh, sure, definitely. So uh, data scientists, the, the, the definition varies a lot. And what a data scientist does at a particular company depends on what the company needs, right? So at some companies, it's a matter of analyzing data and understanding how users are using the product, what are the best ways to make your product better, and so on. And that's more on a, the analytic side. At some other companies, it's more about building data products. It's about building smart, context-sensitive software that adapts your needs and uh, that just gives you a really smooth interaction. And that's a, a totally different setup and totally different type of data scientist. And that varies from company to company. And at any given point, a company might need both or only one of them. Yes, yeah, so it's a pretty broad field or pretty broad mm -hmm. terminology for um, the work. When do companies typically realize, when you talk with them, what's that pain point that makes them realize they need a data scientist? That varies too, actually. Um, sometimes a startup from the very beginning, they realize that they are a data company and they realize that they need a data scientist right from the beginning and that they should be uh, thinking about their data strategy and how to improve the product that they're starting to build. Or maybe it's a data product uh, to start out with. Or sometimes it could take a long time. They could realize that, hey, you know, we don't, we're really making decisions that are not very data informed. We don't have a culture of thinking about our actions um, before we actually do them. And we don't have a culture of analyzing what happened with a new release of a product, what happened with a new version of a product. Yeah. And so that's when they realize that, hey, we need to hire somebody to look into what happened with a particular software release or what happened with a particular product change. Are those data scientists typically playing cleanup? I mean, are they, in your opinion, <laughs> did, did you, are, in those cases, are they brought on too late? It could be. It could be that they're brought on a little bit late and they realize that they can't actually answer the questions that they've been asked because there just isn't enough data that has been recorded so far, right? So there's not enough tracking, not enough instrumentation to be able to answer the questions that they've been brought on to answer. On the other hand, there's many more cases when the data scientist is brought on too early, when maybe the founder hears that, hey, you need a data scientist, you need mm -hmm. an AI play, you know. It's still a buzzword. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And they say, okay, I'm going to hire a data scientist. They're going to sprinkle machine learning dust over everything <laughs> I do. And everything is going gonna, is gonna to be great. And the data scientists join and they realize they don't actually have the necessary infrastructure or even to just it, the data isn't there. And it's going to take uh, you know, six months or a year to gather the data that you need to, to answer those questions. So in that case, maybe that's a little bit too early. Maybe you need to first think about what the data scientists need to be successful. Yeah, so how does, I mean, even yourself, when you're feeling around, and I know you're an independent kind of advisor now, but when you're feeling around as to whether or not to come on to a role, what kind of questions do you ask the company to ascertain whether or not they do have the mm -hmm. right infrastructure? Yeah, so in my case, it's actually different because I can come in when there isn't any infrastructure and data there and actually come in and ask those questions about what are you trying to do? What kind of data? Let's think about what kind of data we should be gathering. Let's think about what to do before you have a data scientist join. Mm -hmm. So in my case, there isn't a prerequisite of you know infrastructure or data that that's supposed to be there already. It's more of a question 
are you ready to think of, of data as a tool? Are you ready to think about your company's culture as a data-informed culture? And if that's not there, if people are not truly convinced that data can bring in value, then um, maybe maybe that's a little bit too early. Yeah, let me dig in on that a little bit because it's rare that you hear culture discussed in the same sentence as data. What do you think that culturally is necessary? What is the shift that a company goes through when they start to think about data differently? Well, a lot of the times uh, people start building products uh, based on instinct and, and that's a, it's a good place to start. And as the product grows, it evolves in ways that maybe they aren't anticipated to start with. And um, in that case, looking at what happened, looking at the consequences of a product change thinking through what happens if you change the UI or if you emphasize a particular part of, of the product or even thinking about adding smart features to the product. Mm. If you don't think that's valuable, if you think that going by instinct is still the best way to go, then data scientists who might tell you more about their consequences and, and what happened, who might do that analysis, they might be frustrated and with, for a good reason, right? Sure, yeah. So do you have any examples of that where using data helped to better understand a choice that someone made, a decision someone made in terms of the UI or certain features of a product? Uh, I actually had a, an example that uh, is not coming from my personal experience in building products, but it's more along the lines of uh, how a data-informed uh, culture changes product design, right? Huh. So. If you look at uh, Apple Photos, uh, one of my uh, pet peeves was that uh, when they identify the faces and they do face detection and when they order the faces, it's alphabetical, hmm. right? And so so that's interesting because if you're trying to look for somebody, it's actually it's not very easy. You have to think of, oh, okay, what name am I looking for and so on and scroll down. But what Google Photo does is uh, organizes them by uh, popularity, hmm. right? So you can look at, hey, these are the top people that show up in my photos. And they, since they're organized by how many times they appear in the photo, um, in, in, in my photo collection, you can actually use that as a proxy for importance of those people. So that's a very small example where it's actually not that you need some super duper machine learning algorithm to decide which person is the most important and so on. And you could actually do that. There's there's a lot of ways to think about, hey, let's look at the co-occurrence between this person and this other person in a particular photo, and let's build a graph of relationships and so on, which you do have the data to, to do. But it turns out that just a very simple data-informed decision, that's enough to add value and appear smarter than just simple alphabetical ordering. Yeah, and the, the impact of that is, you know, again, it may seem small. It may just shave a couple of seconds off of the end user's time, but cumulatively that really adds up. Exactly. It totally changes the product experience. It goes from kind of, oh, okay, this is this is what it is. It's alphabetical. Uh, and it changes to, oh, this is smart. It knows that these top four people are my family. And uh, it, it just appears really smart, even though behind it, there's a very, very simple algorithm. Yeah. And so that's what makes it feel like it's magic AI dust. And exactly. when really it's just a simple observation about the way that people exactly. organize data. 
That's really exactly. cool. And in that case, uh, it's just a matter of having that that thinking of, hey, you know, of course we should take into account how many times a picture appears or a person appears in, in my photo collection. Of course, we, that's part of how we think about displaying information versus, oh, we need to display some faces. Okay, what mm-hmm. order should we put them in? Well, okay, alphabetical is good. Sure. It actually reminds me a lot of UI and UX design in that just being intentional about the outcome that you want to create for the end user is it will take you so much further than just doing whatever is your impulse or overcomplicating uh, your mm-hmm. use of data. Yeah, and there's actually a, a virtual cycle that happens there. When you look at the interaction between good UX design and good data, right? Because when you start gathering data, let's think of even a simple form, right? You can have some uh, smart features to it, which is, let's say, autocomplete, right? Mm-hmm. And that's, that's pretty simple, right? But yeah. it makes a big difference because people just start typing and it autocompletes and they see the the option that they want and they and that's it it's really smooth and it happens fast and it's the desired behavior it's almost invisible exactly and on the data side if you do use autocomplete that just means that you have more complete data because people actually do fill it out because it's so much easier mm-hmm. And then you have cleaner data because they don't have a bunch of typos. They don't, they don't have a hundred different ways of saying the same thing because you, the autocomplete helped them steer towards a canonical version of that particular field. So in turn, this produces better data. Right. There's more data and better data, which in turn creates a better product and creates a better autocomplete in this case, but more broadly, a better product overall. Yeah, everything just goes to making a smoother experience. Mm-hmm. Much of what you do today when you sit down with a company and you're, you're acting as an advisor to them is, so first of all, you have a pretty unique format. You spend five hours a month with them. You limit that time to five hours. Tell me what is going on in that five-hour period. What are you advising them on? How do you help them think through their data problems? Talk to me about what you get when you sit down with Monica for five hours. I do have an interesting model uh, limiting companies to five hours a month because what I'm trying to do is maximize my impact per hour, right? By limiting the time, what I'm trying to do is make sure that I'm working on the most impactful problems that a company has when it comes to data. Mm -hmm. And if they don't know what that is, I help them figure that out. Some companies, it's a question of thinking about data strategy and thinking about what data do you have, what data should you be gathering, what other external data sources you should be looking into depending on what you're trying to do with your data. So that's that's a good place to start. What what are you trying to do with your data? Mm-hmm. And so so that's more on the strategy side. And for other companies, it's more about building data products, building these uh, smart context-aware pieces of software that, that help the users. And so in that case, it's a question of what do you need from a technical point of view? How do you design that architecture? What kind of people do you need and why? And what are the trade-offs on the technical side? And then that brings me to the third question, which is what type of people should should you be hiring and why? Mm-hmm. What kind of skills can you be looking for? Um, so, so it's more about, hey, what kind of team are you building and where should that team even live in your or- organization? So for that company that is in that first bucket where they're just trying to leverage data to get smarter about their own decision making, they're not making a separate product, 
what are the basics that you think that they need to have to position themselves to do that? So I would start with really good instrumentation, uh, really good tracking of what's going on in the product. And it used to be the case that we would just say, hey, track everything, make sure that uh, you keep data for a long time and so on. But but now we need to consider uh, the privacy implications mm-hmm. uh, of that data gathering. Uh, do you, Is that the data that you're getting, that's something that you need for your product or to understand your user? And we need to understand the ethics of what's going to happen when you use the data and how you use it. And that's something that companies need to be thinking about more and more. Are you comfortable with this data about this user being subpoenaed, right? So so there's a lot of questions that are uh, making this question of data gathering more complex. But, but that's a good start, right? So instrumenting a product, making sure that you know what your user is looking at, even things that are a little bit less obvious, right? So let's say that you're building a recommender system. Let's say that you're giving the user uh, several options to choose from. It's not enough to record what, what has been clicked. Mm-hmm. But it's also important to record what other options were there on the screen and what order were they in and what version of the UI uh, were you running. Because that actually later on, when you do hire a data scientist to look at that data, they can actually, it informs their algorithm design and inform, it, it basically becomes training data for, for future algorithms. And so a lot of the times these are not obvious and it's a question of what are you trying to build and what are you trying to understand? What behavior uh, are you analyzing? Have you ever met with a company that is just sort of overwhelmed with all the possibilities of what they could be doing that it almost puts them into paralysis? <laughs> I mean, I would imagine there's someone listening right now who's like, God, that sounds awesome, but I don't even know where I would begin. What do you advise companies when you come across that kind of (laughs) – panic is probably too strong, but I would imagine (laughs) that feeling of being overwhelmed with with data and the possibilities is pretty common. That does happen all the time. So my recommendation then is to think about the impact and think about – what do you expect to happen? What difference is it going to make for any particular option that you're thinking about? Mm-hmm. Uh, imagine that you've already done it. What has changed? Is anything affected? Have you changed the way you make decisions? Or are your product metrics that you're tracking uh, up by, I don't know, 30%? Right. Because if it doesn't make a big difference maybe try to find something else that's that has better ROI. There's a lot of simple things you could do that could make a big difference. And I encourage people to focus on those simple things first. As companies are starting to think about building data teams and bringing on their first data scientists and sort of structuring that out, what advice do you have for them in thinking about hiring for that first role, for the subsequent roles and so forth? There's several different questions and different criteria that companies need to ask themselves before they start hiring data scientists, right? Mm -hmm. So the first one is thinking through the goals that you have for that data team. Do you have any concrete goals or is it just more of a, are you just trying to appease your investors that, hey, they said I should have some data people? What do you expect to do in a year? It does, especially in this climate where there's a lot of hype around AI and machine learning yeah, and so on. Such a and hot there's topic right now. Yeah. And people are kind of feel this pressure that, hey, I should hire one of those smart PhD data scientists yeah. and 
<laughs> you know, see what happens. Uh, have them sprinkle machine learning dust over everything I do. And so I think it's important to first think through what do you expect from your data team and what do you think they can do in a year, for example. And then you have to think about what the roles are that you're hiring for. Are you hiring a data engineer? Are you hiring a data scientist, a data communicator? What are you building towards? Do you have a team lead to, to build this team around? How do you expect them to spend their time? So that's more on the team composition side. Think about what, what type of people you're trying to hire and why. And it's important, I, I was touching a little bit early on data culture. Is your mm -hmm. company ready to treat data as a first-class citizen? Yeah. And if they're not, then you have a little bit more work to do to make sure that anything that comes out of the data team is actually taken into account and, it, and it's valued and it's something that has impact. And then one other question is around infrastructure. Do you have the infrastructure that the data scientists need? Do, can they start doing their job? And this is not necessarily a problem unless there's an expectation mismatch or if you're hiring from the wrong role, maybe you needed to hire a data engineer first to build that infrastructure out. So just be aware of what the data scientists are actually able to do uh, right away. And then think about how do you recruit them? What, what do you have to offer yeah. that other companies uh, don't, right? So the, the data scientists are in demand. Do you have unique learning opportunities? Do you have unique interesting data? Is there a social mission that could attract people? Do you offer a lot of career growth? And it's important here not to bait and switch because if you're going to misrepresent the kind of work that they're going to do, everybody is going to be unhappy, right? right? So, so if, you, uh, if you hire a bunch of uh, PhDs and tell them they're going to build machine learning models and you know, about six months in, they have not been able to even understand the data properly because they had a hard time getting the, the data in order, yeah. together. Yeah, then uh, they're going to be frustrated and they're going to quit and they're going to feel bait and switched. And it's not it's not a good situation to be in. Yeah, it sounds like you've, you've seen that a number of times. Yeah, yeah, it, it does happen a lot. So that's really actually interesting. You talked about in there, you talked about data scientists being able to communicate as well. A data mm -hmm. communicator is what you said. Um, yeah. And you've written, you get asked from time to time about the qualities you value in data scientists. And you've written a lot about this pragmatism. And communication is one of those elements that you really value in data scientists. How much of the responsibility of communicating out this, this, the narrative that the data tells should fall on the data scientists? And how much should it fall on the surrounding company in trying to understand it? I think most of the responsibility falls on the data scientist, right? I think it's the data scientist's job to understand the data and to find a way to communicate it in a way that the rest of the organization and the exec team can understand it. And sure, be ready with a lot of the details and a lot of the assumptions that have been made in the process, but do not overwhelm the rest of the company with all of the uh, these details and assumptions. Mm -hmm. It's important to present a clear message that makes sense. That's why you paid for it. That's your job as a data scientist, right? So the question is, can, can you take a complex concept and explain it clearly uh, without jargon? And can you produce a clean graph and 
does it pass the five second test? Sure. Does it, can you understand the graph in five seconds and understand the message that you're trying to send in five seconds? Can you resist the temptation to just list all your caveats and just make sure that what you're saying is technically true, right? Mm -hmm. So this happens a lot, especially with people like myself coming from academia, where you are trained to, to make sure that things are technically true and that you have all of these details and assumptions that are built in. And, and that's just not a yeah. good way to communicate clearly. Are these specializations, like the ability to visualize data, the ability to communicate it well, are these specializations or are they going to be inherent traits of a core data scientist role? Uh, I think that that answer depends on the stage of the company. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the companies that are early on, they might want to hire data scientists who can cover uh, all of these skills in, in one person, in one role. Yeah. Uh, but as a company grows, that specialization becomes more and more needed where you have uh, people focusing on analysis, where you have analysts, where you have people f focusing on building data products like uh, machine learning engineers or data scientists, and where you have people focusing on communication like data visualization experts or even writers, right? So it also, it has also grown as the field has evolved. There I see more and more specialization around these roles and mm -hmm. uh, people focusing on, on a particular side of it that they're particularly interested in. That makes sense. Because this is becoming such a just massive field, I would imagine the other big evolution is going from you know having one data scientist to a team of data scientists. And um, with that comes the need to have someone who knows how to manage data scientists. Uh, mm -hmm. You've made that transition yourself. You've managed other data scientists. You've been an individual contributor yourself. How did you find that transition of going from a one-person data scientist to someone who's who's building a team? And, and what advice do you have for others making that jump? Uh, sure. So in, in this climate, and this is also true of engineering, uh, it's very, very difficult to recruit and retain data scientists. And that's something that you need to keep in mind uh, when you're managing them. They have a lot of options. Mm -hmm. And so it, what your job is to, to make data scientists feel like they have an impact and that they are valued and that the work matters and it makes a difference because it's not enough to just offer them a job. You just have to keep them engaged every single day. You have to make sure that the work that they're doing is visible and has a big impact. And that's very difficult, right? Yeah. So as a manager, it's it's not a question of, hey, I'm, uh, I'm your boss. I'm telling you what to do. That is no longer a model that works. What you need to do as a leader is inspire and grow people and give them the mission and the visibility that, that they need and, and have them thrive. And so in that sense, it's a service uh, role, right? You are making sure that everybody on your team is unblocked and that they're doing their best work and that you pitch their work to the rest of the company and that you make sure they're engaged and feel like they're advancing in their career and that their work matters yeah. and it has an impact. So that's that's tough. And of course, that comes with recruiting data scientists. That's it's very difficult in this environment. So you have to have something to offer that others don't. Yeah, and it comes easier, I think, to some companies than others. You have to sort of find that unique angle, as you were saying before, about what makes your company and, and your role unique. Right. Well, Monica, thank you so much for talking with me. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. My pleasure. <laughs> 